I want to let you in on a little bit about me this morning. And I want to let you in on something that's been going on with me. And it's a little odd, and it's a little weird, but I think it really opens us up to the treasures of what God has to share for us today. And I got to admit, I, I, I was thinking about it, and over the last year, I've had approximately three dreams about Tom Brady. When I, <laughs> I've had three dreams, and like, they're vivid dreams, and I have not told my wife about this, and I thought I shared it all with you today. And, I'm, and I guess I'm not surprised that I've had three dreams when I go to sleep at night about Tom Brady, because Tom Brady, I think about him probably once a day. I think about him once a day. And I'm sure you think about someone way too much, at least once a day. Anybody willing to just yell out who they think about way too much? You think about Tom Brady too? <laughs> my wife said that. No one, is anyone? It, 80 for Brady? You think about the 80 for Brady? I'm not asking if you think about Tom Brady too much. Is there someone you think about too much in your life? Okay, besides Jesus? Okay. So am I the only one? Okay, because I've, I've thought about it. I was like, you know, I think about Tom Brady at least once a day for like years and years and years. And I thought about it a little bit more. And there's precisely three people I think about every single day. Tom Brady, Jesus, and Jimmy Buffett. And those are the... <laughs> I think about these three people now, <laughs> and, and two of them I've had dreams about, and uh, I won't say which ones, but like, I mean, on, <laughs> and by the way, I picked the very European Jesus with the branded crucifix logo. I hope you like it. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, back to Tom. I don't, I, I, I've had three dreams about Tom, probably because I've thought about him, and I don't know Tom. I don't know if you know that, but I don't know Tom Brady. And uh, there's just a picture of him throwing a Super Bowl trophy that he had won in Tampa. He threw it over to Gronkowski. Do you know who Rob Gronkowski is? He's a football player. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they threw it across the boat, across from boat to boat. He's crazy. So anyway, I've had multiple dreams where Tom and I become friends, like real friends in real life. And I've got these images of him and I were just tossing the football in the backyard and he's showing me how to put a spiral on the ball. And like, and get this, he laughs at all my jokes. He thinks I am so funny in these dreams. He thinks I'm hilarious. In one dream, like he's actually texting me and then one of my friends leans over, he's like, who's that? I'm like, oh no, big deal, it's just Tom Brady. And I'm like bragging to my friends. And the relationship I have found in these dreams isn't all one way. Like, I'm teaching him stuff, too. Like, I'm, like, teaching him how to play pickleball, uh, which I really don't know how to play pickleball. And he probably has a pickleball court in his own uh, massive mansion. And I also teach him things like how to write a really good sermon. So it's not just a one-way street. It's like a two-way street. But the truth is, I don't know Tom. And I was, I was reflecting on these weird dreams. Uh, it it kind of reminded me of something. Have you ever watched an interview with a celebrity and the celebrity talks about their fans? They will always say something along the lines of like, oh, I love my fans. I wouldn't be anywhere without my fans. Big shout out to the fans. But they also talk about how sometimes the fans will turn them into what, they want, what the fan wants them to be. Like they create a fantasy in their mind uh, of what they perceive the celebrity to be. 
Does that make sense? All right, and so like fans will project what they want the celebrity to be onto the celebrity, and it gets really weird or gets really awkward when they actually interact with the celebrity in real person. And so many celebrities have these stories of like, these are weird interactions because the fan is projecting what they want them to be onto the celebrity. But the celebrity isn't whatever the fan wants them to be. They are who they are. And frankly, when a fan does this, it's, uh, it, it isn't a really important if the fantasy is accurate because it's not about the celebrity. The fantasy is designed to serve the fan. All right, do you follow? All right, so this is more about the fan. And so when I was having these, uh, when I've had these three dreams about Tom, that it really wasn't about Tom. They were what I wanted Tom to be for me in the dream, I discovered, right? And it got me thinking, isn't this sometimes how we think about Jesus? Isn't this how sometimes people think about Jesus? Like, fans will project onto a celebrity what they want the celebrity to be, and so too can we project what we want Jesus to be onto Jesus, we might shape him into the minds. We might shape him in our minds into the version that we want him to be. Like, maybe the best way to do this is to provide an illustration uh, from one of the leading voices of our generation. Uh, he surprisingly depicts how we can fashion Jesus into what we want him to be. It's truly a powerful illustration. So why don't we roll that clip? Summer's ready, come on, y'all. Been slaving over this for hours. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, or as our brothers to the south call you, Jesus, we thank you so much for this bountiful harvest of Domino's, KFC, and the always delicious Taco Bell. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family, my two beautiful, beautiful, I handsome, this striking too. sons, Walker and Texas Ranger or TR, as we call him. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, who's a stone-cold fox. Mm. Also want to thank you for my best friend and teammate, Cal Naughton Jr., who's got my back no matter what. Shake and bake. Dear Lord, baby Jesus, we also thank you for my wife's father, Chip. We hope that you can use your baby Jesus powers to heal him and his horrible leg. And it smells terrible, and the dogs are always mm. bothering with it. Mm. Dear tiny infant Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. You know what I want? I want you to do this grace good so that God will let us win tomorrow. <sighs> Dear tiny Jesus, your golden fleece diapers with your tiny little fat balled up fist pawing. He was a man. He had a beard. Look, I like the baby version the best. Do you hear me? I win the races and I get the money. Ricky, finish the damn grace. I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says like, I want to be formal, but I'm here to party too. Because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. I like to think of Jesus like with giant eagle's wings yeah. and singing lead vocals for Leonard Skinner with like an angel band. And I'm in the front row and I'm hammered drunk. Hey, Cal, why don't you just shut up? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Dear eight pound, six ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet. 
just little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and the $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season. Also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace. I just want to say the Powerade is delicious mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day. And we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 Let's dig in. That was a hell of a grace, man. You nailed that like a split hog. I appreciate that. I'm not going to lie to you. It felt good. All right. <laughs> okay, so uh, Ricky Bobby's favorite Jesus was the baby Jesus. That's right. And maybe yours isn't, yours isn't, your favorite isn't the baby Jesus, but what is your favorite Jesus? What is your favorite Jesus? Is it the J.G. Uh, Wentworth 877 Cash Now Jesus? The ATM Jesus, like the Jesus that will provide you more money than other people? Is it the, maybe your Jesus isn't the baby Jesus, maybe your Jesus is the hinge Jesus. The Jesus that is there for you to find your mate. He's there to find the person that you're looking for. Maybe, maybe he's a.k.a. Mr. Matchmaker Jesus. Maybe your favorite Jesus is the career blessing Jesus. Maybe your favorite Jesus is, if you're a student, that, you, that Jesus would bless your, uh, your, your studies. Maybe your favorite Jesus is Republican Jesus. Maybe your favorite Jesus is Democrat Jesus. Or maybe your favorite Jesus is the all about me Jesus, which is where you are constantly discovering new and amazing things about yourself, who you are, and you pray to the Jesus who created you to be the unique snowflake that you are. It's an all about me Jesus. Now here's my point. Are you interested in being a follower of Jesus or are you interested in a Jesus that fits your preferences and fits your desires? Now, Jesus, in his earthly life, he often found himself in awkward situations, similar to awkward situations that sometimes celebrities find with themselves when they project things onto other people. And in John chapter 6, we see that Jesus is speaking to a crowd of about 5,000 people. There's 5,000 people, and everyone is excited. His global brand is exploding. And word on the street is he can pretty much heal everybody. And so people are coming all around and they're watching him do miraculous signs. So literally, he'll go into a town, he'll go to the equivalent of a first century hospital or wherever the sick people are, and he will go one by one and he'll start healing everyone. So like doctors are out of work. They have no business anymore because Jesus is coming in, Jesus MD is coming in and he's healing whole towns. And then he's saying really interesting things and he knows things about people, even though the people didn't tell him things about them. Like he knows personal things about them. And the reason he does that is because he's in touch with God, his father. And God, God his father is telling him things about people so that he can tell that to them to demonstrate that he loves them and he cares for them. So the crowd has grown. It's getting bigger. Like, this is it. The disciples are excited. We're finally getting all the people we ever wanted uh, to follow us and all that. And so after being with him all day, Jesus knows that the people are getting hungry. He's like, uh-oh, people are getting hungry. And so he challenges the OG 12, 12 disciples. He says, you guys need to give them something to eat. And the 12 disciples look at each other and they're like, we don't have anything to eat. And then they also say, and also we don't have any money um, 
to feed 5,000 people. Do you know how much it costs to feed 5,000 people? It'd be like a whole year's salary to feed 5,000 people. And we don't have a cash, we don't have any cash on us, and there aren't any stores open. And, um, and, and also because the, the chase closes at 5 p.m. So nobody has any money to buy food, except there's this little boy that has five loaves of bread and two fish. And he takes the five loaves, and he takes the two fish, and he multiplies it, and he feeds 5,000 people. And the disciples are out handing out the bread. And they say that there's so much leftovers that they gather 12 baskets left over. There is a mass feeding, and it's a true miracle. And so after the meal, we see that the crowd sticks around. They want to see what's going to happen. And, maybe, and so they, they end up camping out all night. Right? They're camping out all night, and they say, well, maybe if we stick around all night, maybe we can get free breakfast in the morning. And in the morning, they wake up, and they're looking for another meal from Jesus. And maybe they thought Jesus might make them breakfast. He might make them some pancakes or something. Or he might, um, or like he could give them lunch or whatever. But they look around, they look around, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. Where did Jesus go? Jesus took a boat with the 12 disciples and they crossed over the lake. And eventually, they realize that Jesus and the disciples are gone. And so they go, okay, we got to figure out how we can catch up with them. So by the time they catch up with Jesus, the story says that they're starving, they're hungry. And they're like, May, well, we missed breakfast. Maybe he can whip up some lunch for us. Maybe we could get, maybe he can whip up 5,000 quarter pounders with Jesus. <laughs> My wife just gave me the dirtiest look ever. Anyway, <laughs> and so anyway, this is where it gets a little dicey. Jesus doesn't give them something to eat. And here's what he says. Um, uh, you're just going to have to listen, our, our guy isn't here. He says in John 6, verses 26, uh, <laughs> I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus calls them out. Uh, hey, what's up? Uh, he, Jesus calls them out. <laughs> and he knows that the people aren't going to all the trouble to sacrifice because they're following him. The only reason that they're chasing after him is because they want some free food. Was it Jesus they wanted? Or were they interested in only what he could do for them? So Jesus, recognizing that he doesn't want, uh, they may not want him, they may just want what he can do for them, he offers himself. He gives this big, long analogy, and it's very detailed and beautiful how he says that he is the bread of life, which is meant to communicate that he is what they need. They don't need another meal, they need him. They need to experience him. They need him, the person. And so Jesus is testing the crowd. And he has to decide, uh, they have to decide, if he will actually satisfy what they need or if they're interested in something else. And how does the crowd respond? How do you think the crowd responds? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You're, you don't need another meal. You need me. This is what you need in your life. You need to encounter me. This is what... The crowd does in verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of the people turned to go home. And here's what's interesting. Jesus 
doesn't chase after them. He doesn't soften his message to get them to come back. He doesn't send his disciples chasing after them with burgers and, I don't know, fries. He, does, he doesn't follow traditional marketing wisdom. Maybe you, uh, if you're a marketer, you know traditional marketing wisdom, which is, you know the saying, there's riches and niches? Meaning, like, he did not regroup and pull a mastermind of the original 12 disciples and lay out a go-to-market strategy to capture an isolated market segment and win back a percentage of the population. He doesn't sell out on his theological convictions to fit the cultural narrative so people don't abandon him. He seems okay with the fact that he's not that popular anymore. So let me ask you a personal question. Are you into Jesus for the free bread? Are you into Jesus because of what he can do for you? Are you just into Jesus for the blessing? Are you into Jesus for the stuff he might, you might be able to get from him? Is your primary motivation for following Jesus centered around what he can do for you? And the truth is, if you're looking for a Jesus that lays out a comfortable and gentle and warm path, if you're looking for a Jesus and you expect him to manifest in the way that you want him to manifest, you may not find that in the scriptures. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that following him just isn't all rainbows and it isn't all unicorns. And what, and what we decide with that information is going to be up to us. And he isn't whatever we decide we think he should be. So, how do we know if we're truly interested in the real Jesus? How do we, how do we measure that? Well, to be frank, there's good ways and bad, bad ways to measure whether we're really interested in Jesus. I'm going to give you a couple bad ways. Uh, and the first is uh, cultural comparisons. What's a cultural comparison? Cultural comparison is when we compare our relationship with God against another person's relationship with God. And basically, as long as we're more spiritual than the next person, that should be good enough. And the problem of using cultural comparison is that human beings are really good at deceiving ourselves. And here's what happens. Generally speaking, we, we don't compare ourselves against the best Christian we know. Who do we generally compare ourselves to? We compare ourselves to uh, the worst Christian we know, <laughs> the race to the bottom. Like, if I'm trying to win a contest in my head, I always pick someone I'm a little bit better than, right? Or I think that I'm better than. And our general inclination is that we compare ourselves, our goodness, against people who are spiritually anemic or spiritually broken or have some of the worst problems known to humankind. We compare ourselves to the person who has the bad marriage. We compare ourselves to the person who uh, comes to church uh, but still struggles with addiction. We compare ourselves with the outspoken uh, agnostic family member. And as long as we compare ourselves to people who are spiritually anemic, surprise, the results are in, it turns out we're a follower of Jesus. And so if our starting place is comparing ourselves to others, we will always go to the race to the bottom and we will always end up feeling really good about ourselves because of the condition of our hearts. Because we're going to measure ourselves not against healthy people, but against the people that we can win the competition in our own minds. A second measurement that's not so good is the religious measurement. The religious measurement. 
The religious measurement is sometimes known as the bonded set measurement. What is bonded set? Bonded set, if you can imagine a box, and there's firm lines on all four corners of the box, and there's people outside of the box, and there's people who are inside. And the people who are inside represents those who are real Christians, and the people who are outside the box would represent people who are not. All right? And sometimes we think of our Christian faith, our Christianity, and we measure it against who's in and who's out. And usually how we measure who's in and out is we use three standards. What we believe, how we behave, and how we serve. Believe, behave, and serve. And those seem good. Yeah, we should believe that Jesus is God, and we should like not hurt other people, and we should serve the community. Those all sound like good things, but what is wrong with the bonded set? What's wrong with just using those measurements to determine if you're in or you're out? The truth of it is, in the religious measurement, the bonded set, you can believe all the right things, you can behave in all the right ways, and you can serve your little heart out. But your heart could still be very far away from God. And this is the issue that Jesus took with the Pharisees because they believed all the right things, they behaved and they served, but at the same time, their hearts were very far from God. And this is why Jesus had conflict with the religious people of his day. So we don't want to follow the religious measurement either because it's not a good indicator of what's actually going on in our hearts. And so what is the best way? The best way to define a Jesus follower is to look to the man himself. It's to look to Jesus. And we need to ask the question, how does Jesus define what it means to follow him? And whatever that measurement is, that's the one we're going to follow at Pack City. And that's what we're going to do in Pack City over the coming weeks. We will study Jesus, and by doing so, we will discover what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So today, I'm going to leave you with a spiritual discipline for you to consider and for me to consider and it's one of the most difficult disciplines, but it's important, and it's required of being a disciple of Jesus. And it's this. It is the discipline of submission. Submission. Submission is a tough word. I'm going to explain it in a minute. But Jesus, in another part of uh, his story here on earth, uh, in Matthew 16, it says, then Jesus said to the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And what we see is that Jesus is foreshadowing the kind of death that he would experience. And he's communicating that he was willing to serve humanity by laying down his own life and dying on the cross. And Jesus knew that God, his Father, loved him so much that it enabled him to serve people and ultimately demonstrate the greatest form of submission, which is submission to his Father in obedience, but also willing to submit himself to us, to show us that he loved us. And today, when we look at the cross, we see an invitation to submit ourselves and everything we are, and everything we could hope to be, to the way of Jesus. To willingly take up the cross, like Jesus says here, to willingly do that means that we submit our time, it means that we give up our talent, 
It means we submit our treasure. Anything that we hold dear, it means a willingness to engage Jesus on his terms, not ours. It means humbling ourselves and admitting our need for his ways in our lives. And why do we do this? Why do something so difficult? Why do something so countercultural? Well, Jesus says here, and what Jesus was trying to show with the whole bread situation was that this kind of submission is actually the thing that leads to freedom. It actually leads to life. Why? Because when we choose to submit our lives to God, in that process, we begin to recognize our need for God. It gives us a real, a realistic evaluation of our abilities. And from that, God is able to come in and bring freedom and the life we're actually looking for. Another way to put this is, um, which Olympics is coming up next, by the way? Does anyone know? They, you were on it. Yes, Paris 2024. We should all go. I'll uh, charter a private jet. You're in charge. Uh, <laughs> you'll set it up. So, we, so the Olympians. Guess what's going on in every Olympian's life right now leading up to Paris 2024? They are making a lot of sacrifices right now. In many ways, they're submitting themselves to the higher goal. And by submitting to themselves to the higher goal, they are limiting their options. They're not out till two or three in the morning on a Saturday night. They are eating healthy things. They're filling their mind with healthy things. They're training themselves. They're limiting their options, and they're choosing to submit themselves through sacrifice to the training regimen that it's required to become an elite athlete and operate at an elite level. And from that, some of them will go on, and they will achieve their goal, and they will get an Olympic medal. And from that limitation, from that submission in their life, from that sacrifice will result the freedom of achieving that goal that they sought out to achieve. And sometimes we get it wrong when we think about submission. Because we think, oh no, you know, Jesus just wants to take away all the fun stuff. But really what he's saying here is like, you actually, this is the way you do it. You limit your options Choose to bring your life under my rule and reign. And when you do that, when you choose to submit to the way I want you to live, that results in the true freedom you're looking for. So let me ask you a personal question. Do you have Olympic-like intensity when it comes to submission in your life? And if that question stings a little, it should, because I asked myself that question when I was writing this, and I don't. And maybe you do, and good for you. Maybe you can teach next week. But if you don't, maybe you're better. Um, my point is this. Are you willing to submit your life and your decisions to Christ and to the way of Jesus? Some people here... Maybe you're submitting your life. You're organizing your life around your career. Uh, meaning that the organizing principle of your life revolves around the career that you're trying to build. And then what you do is that you salt bay. You drop a little, you season a little, you pepper in Jesus whenever it feels like it works. 
It's almost like you bring him in at the end, like an abracadabra, like a, just, God, help me to get to the next level, one more level. Um, others, um, you might submit your life to the tyranny of the urgent, meaning whatever's important right now is important right now, and if Jesus fits in, then he fits in. But if he doesn't, then I've got to take care of the things that are important. Jesus will understand. After all, he's a God of grace. Still others submit their lives not around Jesus, but around romantic love and falling in love. And that's very important. I hope everyone finds the love that they're looking for in this life, but they organize their life around it. Listen, I don't know the details of your circumstances, but I do know this. Following Jesus, the way Jesus says he should be followed, requires us to completely reorient our lives and organize our lives around the reign and the rule and the lordship of Jesus. Because in that submission, although it's not fully understood, in that submission, when things are look like, man, you mean I can't do whatever I want? When we choose to forego our own individuality, in that submission, that's what we find what we're truly looking for. My prayer today is that it would be a reminder that what you're truly looking for, what you truly want, the thing you came to discover here today wasn't a little bit of Jesus pepper. It wasn't more self-actualization. What you actually came here for was the real God and his power and what he wants to do. And it isn't found in fashioning a God that fits your preferences. It isn't found in uh, seeking a God who will just do whatever we want him to do. It's actually found in becoming a disciple of the God who is who he is. Just like you want to be accepted for who you are, so too God invites us to accept him as he is. And when we do that, and when we're willing to submit to the rule and reign, that's when we find freedom. That's when we find life. Well, why don't we all stand? We're going to sing one last song together. Um, but let's, let's pray a little bit. Um, so God, we ask that um, as we go into the series that, well, I just ask for myself, I don't know what I'm, I mean, I'm trying to follow you and I'm trying to uh, hear from you and I'm trying to lead and I'm trying to be a good, all these things, a good family person and a good friend and all the things. And God, I know many of the people here today, they want versions of what I want too. And God, um, I ask that in every way that we need to submit our life or parts of our life to you, I ask that you would show us how to do that. You would bring to mind the areas where you just want us to surrender to you. That we would say, I give up, God, I really do want to follow your way. And if that's you, um, if that's applying to you, just, you know, quietly do business with God right now. I'm going to pause and give you a moment to do that.